I know fake news is an issue, a big one. Fortunately, though, it doesn't take me in. But it turns out that's what most of us think. And that if anything, more educated people are more likely to be fooled. What's more deliberate attempts to mislead can have huge consequences for individuals and for society. And if you still aren't sure, I think I know a way to convince you. You're listening to the podcast that puts leading thinkers on the spot by asking for one big idea to help shape our new era. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. Today, I'm joined by Chloe Hojamatheo, the producer of an incredibly powerful BBC series available on BBC Sounds called Mayday. Hi, Chloe. Hello. We ought to admit, I suppose, to the listeners that we know each other because we worked on a BBC series ourselves last year. That's right, about poverty in London. Yeah, called The Fix. That too is available on BBC Sounds. But, I, you know, when I listened to Mayday, Chloe, I had a kind of retrospective fan feeling, which was that had I kind of known how brilliant Mayday was when I was working with you on The Fix, I think I would have behaved with much greater deference towards you. <laughs> I want to apologise to you for not acknowledging your brilliance when I was working with you. No, we had a great time in Dagenham. So just tell me, when we were working on that programme in Dagenham, were you, because I think a lot of people who don't understand the world of BBC and BBC Radio don't realise that producers like you are nearly always working on several things at once. So were you working on Mayday when you and I were in Dagenham? Yes. So Basically, it took a year. It was a year in the making because I started working on it almost immediately after the death of James Lemessurier. When his death was reported in the news, I began discussing with the Radio 4 commissioning editor doing something on it. And within a couple of weeks, I'd written something up and had something commissioned. It wasn't clear at the time what he wanted, whether he wanted a 10-part series, whether he thought it was a one-off doc or not. So I was sort of squirrelling away in the background trying to see what I could get and whether there was something there that deserved a long series or not. So that was all going on while we were working together in Dagenham, yeah. Well, I'm even more impressed. I want to say Mayday had an enormous impact on me. I mean, look, it's great listening. It's absolutely intriguing. And I kind of gobbled it all up in a couple of days. But it really impacted me because we've all been talking about fake news and disinformation for years. And as I said a moment ago, I think a lot of people think, yeah, yeah, but that's other people who are affected by that. And and yes, it might sway a few opinions, but does it really make that much difference? And I, I think that your series drove home to me in a way nothing had done before, quite how incredibly powerful, destructive and worrying, deliberate disinformation is. So we're going to get into all of that. Just before we do, you kind of said you started working on it when you heard about the death of James Measurer, who is the central figure in the podcast. But why was his death something which you picked up on notice and wanted to do something about? It was big news. He was a strange, shady character, and he had died in mysterious circumstances in Istanbul. His body was found on the cobble street in the middle of the night or the early hours of the morning. Several days before his death, the Russian Foreign Ministry had accused him of being a spy, a British spy. And there was a lot of speculation about what the White Helmets were really about. I have to say, I hadn't really looked into any of this. And when it first came across my desk, I kind of thought, 
the white helmets, isn't there something a bit dodgy about them? I don't really know what, but I kind of have a feeling they're not everything they say they are. I don't know where I got that from. It must have seeped in through this disinformation that's out there. And so I was very cautious when I approached this. And to be honest, I really thought that some of the rumours about the White Helmets and Jameson Measure might be true when I started. I thought I might end up with a Pulitzer Prize having uncovered the greatest hoax against the West this century, probably. I think that's one of the things that makes it so powerful. I remember doing a documentary, TV documentary, many, many years ago. And as I was recording it, I was doing pieces to camera. And I had assumed throughout that at the end, these were just kind of rough cuts. And at the end, I would be able to do a kind of authoritative voiceover capturing my reflections at the end of the process. And then the producer said to me, no, we're going to use all of those. And it went down well as a documentary. And I was chatting to a friend and I said, he said it was really good. And I said, why do you think it was good? And he said, well, because for once you didn't seem as though you'd made up your mind already and that you already knew all the answers. And I think there's something in Mayday about you going on a journey, which is one of the things that makes it powerful. So let's just give, I know it's going to be hard to do because there's so much in it and 10 episodes or whatever the number was. Can you give people a kind of one minute potted overview of what this is. It's about a man, James the Measure. It's about a movement, the White Helmets. It's about a conflict, Syria. And it's about the phenomenon of disinformation. Is that right? That's right. It's kind of several stories layered together. At its heart, it's the story of one man, a human being. It's me trying to get to know who this man was. What was motivating him? What was he doing? What was a British man doing in the centre of the Syrian conflict. I mean, he became such a big character that his name was coming up at the UN. The Russians and Syrians delegations were holding meetings at the United Nations and and talking about him. Who was this British ex-soldier who had set up a band of rescuers in the middle of the Syrian war? What was he doing there? And what led to his mysterious death? Why had he died at such a young age under mysterious circumstances in Istanbul? So on one level, it's me trying to work out who James was. And he'd had a very mysterious, quite glamorous life all around the world. He'd worked in the Middle East. He'd worked as a security contractor. He'd worked in the British military for 10 years. He was Sandhurst educated from quite a sort of elite family. So on the one level, it's just the unravelling of a human being, a human life, and trying to get to the heart of who he was and, and what he was doing and what happened to him. And in order to do that, I have to unravel a story of geopolitics and intrigue because James LeMessurier got pulled into a much bigger story, which is about how modern conflicts are shaped and publicised. And the fact that in this day and age, it's not just guns and bombs that win conflicts. It's the online narrative. It's the way that conflict is sold to the public around the world. It's controlling public opinion about the war. So you've got to win the battle on the ground and you've got to win the battle for public opinion. And the Syrians have been doing this for years and years and so have the Russians. And so the combination of these two nations in a war which is an international war, let's be honest. There are so many countries in the world that have had a stake in what's going on in Syria. The disinformation or the narrative shaping that has taken place in the Syrian war has been on a level that I don't think we've ever seen before. So at the heart of this is a debate about who's right and who's wrong in the Syrian war. And most Western opinion is that Assad is a dictator and that 
he should have made way for a different, preferably democratically accountable government, and that in holding on to power, he has committed a number of atrocities, as well as seeing the kind of devastation of large parts of his country. There is another perspective, and the other perspective is that he has been fighting against extremist forces, jihadist forces, and that the West has been involved in kind of destabilization, attempted regime change, or mere naivety in in terms of understanding what's really at stake here. So you've got this argument going on about what this war is about. The White Helmets are a significant group because they are a humanitarian group, and a humanitarian group that has, in its work of digging people out of rubble, saving their lives, come across, found evidence of, for example, chemical warfare attacks. And so, therefore, for those who are defending Assad, it's been critical to discredit the White Helmets and one of their founders, James Amejre. That's kind of what's at the crux of this. But that what you then discovered in Media, amongst the many things that you discovered, because you tell the story of his life and of the White Helmets, but you discover the kind of systematic way in which this kind of discrediting of the White Helmets has taken place and the role of particular individuals who've they've made it their core of their their life. That's what they spend their time doing, working on this attempt to discredit the White Helmets. That's right. And I think that's what I found so surprising and quite shocking, really, because if there's a, an alleged chemical attack in Syria and civilians are killed, and then the organisation that monitors chemical weapons attacks sends inspectors and they come back and they come to a conclusion there was a chemical attack there. And Syria says, oh, no, we didn't do anything. It wasn't us. The international community would say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? But then suddenly, when there are professors at some of the top British universities saying, well, we think that the evidence has been cooked up. We don't believe there was an attack. We believe there's something much more sinister going on. We think it was a false flag, which is one side in a conflict basically perpetrating a crime against themselves to blame the other side. And so you've got these professors at some of the top universities in Britain saying this. You've got individuals who are online journalists, citizen journalists, who are being given safe passage in Syria and being taken to the front line by the Syrian state and the Syrian military to report on what's going on on the ground. When Westerners are also feeding this narrative, it becomes much more confusing. And when all of this is elevated to the United Nations, again, it becomes much more confusing. You've got Westerners sitting behind a desk with a UN logo behind them saying, the white helmets are really dodgy. There's something going on there. Their videos are faked. This is all a lie. The listener back home, we're sitting in our living rooms watching this stuff on Facebook or on YouTube, and it's really difficult to be able to tell what's going on. It looks like there's an expert, a UN expert saying this. Why wouldn't you believe it? It's very difficult to tell. And I think what's interesting about this conflict is that these Westerners, and in a sense, James LeMessurier is one as well, all these Westerners have become involved in the Syrian war, and all of them are playing this tug of war, trying to shape the narrative. And the reason the White Helmets are so important is because in a conflict, in a way where everybody has a stake, I mean, to what extent the West has been involved in Syria, you can argue about 
whether they've made mistakes, whether what they did was for selfish reasons to protect British interests rather than Syrian interests. They funded some armed groups at the beginning of the conflict. All of this is true. But the white helmets, there is something about them that elevated them in this conflict because the only thing they were doing was rescuing people. That's it. The idea was they were not involved in the conflict beyond helping their neighbourhood deal with bomb attacks or with any other crisis. They were putting out fires. There still are no state services in rebel-controlled areas in Syria. So there is no fire service. There is no ambulance service. There is nothing to help the local population. So when a bomb falls on a block of flats and that block of flats collapses, there is no one there to help pull these people out or to put out the fires or to clear the rubble from the streets. And the White Helmets were groups of people who emerged locally who were just organically trying to do this. They just got up and, and started pulling the rubble off buildings, trying to pull people out, their neighbours, their cousins, their brothers and sisters-in-law. And what James LeMessurier did was bring Western funding to that and start training these people and pulling them together under one title and a set of values and a code of conduct. And they became the White Helmets. And so in a conflict where everybody's hands are dirty in a way, here is an organisation that seems really quite above it all quite heroic and pure in a way. And the problem was that James LeMessurier was far away from the rescues that were going on on the ground. And so he he began attaching GoPro cameras to the White Helmets' helmets so that he could see how their training was impacting what was going on on the ground. Those videos were so incredible, they started going on the internet. And what those videos showed was Yes, some evidence of chemical weapons attacks, although those are far more rare. What they were showing on a daily basis was bombs falling on residential neighbourhoods, civilians being targeted in the war, a lot of children, dead children, a lot of children being pulled out of rubble. Now, whatever you think of a conflict, targeting civilians, targeting residential areas, that's got to be a no-no. And so... That was such a red line. And those videos were so powerful because you were transported to those neighbourhoods watching them. You'd be in your bedroom in London and suddenly you're on the ground in a neighbourhood in Syria watching people pulling for hours, pulling bits of rubble and concrete and pulling out tiny babies from underneath, sometimes alive, which were these incredible moments when they rescued a baby or a woman or a man or a child. A lot of the time, most of the time, actually, the people that they were pulling out were dead. And so this was a red line and it it really started shaping the way people could see the war. Yes, there are Islamists there. Yes, it's confusing. But hang on a minute. Assad is targeting neighbourhoods and civilians and children. That is definitely wrong. And so that was having a real impact on the way Assad was being seen internationally. And that's when the Russians and Syrians, particularly after Russia joined the war as an ally to Syria and lent its military weight behind the Syrian government and the Syrian military, that's when it really sort of ramped up. And the idea was, and this was an idea that the Syrians have been using for years, is to just say those videos are fake. And the Syrian government was saying this right at the beginning of the conflict when there were marches on the street and unarmed protesters, peaceful protesters were being shot in the streets of Syria and videos were emerging of this. The Syrian government was saying that's fake. That's fake blood. That's not a real person being shot. Don't believe those videos. This has been a tactic of the Syrian government for a very long time. What you've described is, as you say, in this messy, difficult, tragic, awful conflict, here is this group that seem to be driven 
purely by humanitarian motives. And because of what they expose, it makes them the target for disinformation. But what's fascinating about the series is that James de Mejere is not a perfect man. He's a very flawed man. He makes some quite big mistakes. And the White Helmets are not perfect. And indeed, they too make mistakes, or people who are associated with them make mistakes. And I thought that was important because if these things were absolutely clear-cut, then I suspect disinformation would have nothing to hang on. But nobody is perfect. Nothing is clear-cut. There's always something that campaigns of disinformation can use like a kind of starter yeast or something to yeah, grow. There's a nugget of truth in behind every little bit of disinformation. You know, has the West been involved in helping to arm or fund opposition movements in Syria? Yes, that's true. It has happened. Have there been people associated with jihadists involved in the White Helmets? Yes. At one point, there were 4,300 members of the White Helmets. Among them, were people who had left jihadist groups. And in a sense, I think at the very beginning, James Lemezra quite naively thought, well, this is fantastic. We're helping people to put down their weapons and stop fighting and join this group of humanitarians. But very soon, videos emerged of white helmets who had previously been dressed as ISIS fighters. And it was just a complete PR disaster. And this was used by the Syrian and Russian governments to discredit the entire organisation, to say that everyone in the White Helmets is a supporter of the jihadists, that they're associated, that they're collaborating. And it's very messy. It's a war zone. There are individuals who have all kinds of different affiliations and feelings all across the country. The White Helmets, as I say, is a group of people operating in local neighbourhoods. It's not one organisation in one place. And I think it was very difficult for them to control that. They very quickly realised that this was a disaster for them. And so now I think if you've had any kind of association with an armed group, you're not welcome in the White Helmets any longer. So, Chloe, you said at the beginning you entered into this yourself, not knowing where truth lay and wondering whether or not you might end up joining those casting doubt on Le Mejere and on, on the White Helmets. In the process of the documentary, were there times when you wobbled? Were there times when you thought, well, hang on, this isn't just kind of Vanessa Beely, who we'll come on to in a minute, who's somebody who's got a kind of rather peculiar hero worship of Assad. But, you know, this is kind of very serious you know, academics and others. So were there times when you felt, well, hang on, maybe they're right and maybe I am being conned? Yeah, there were several times like that. I mean, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning in a sweat thinking, what if I've got this all wrong? What if I second guess myself constantly? And I think it's important to do that as a journalist, but particularly in this case when everything is so nuanced and where there are these nuggets of truth behind everything. So I'd go online and I'd see jihadist executions in town squares and the white helmets would be present and I'd be saying to myself what is going on there another time the BBC's got this incredible service called monitoring which is an international service which journalists from around the world monitor the news in languages from all across the world and there's a particular team called the jihadist monitoring team jihadist media monitoring team and they basically follow jihadist narratives on various media platforms and social media around the world and I spoke to them and they said, look, we found this video where there's a white helmet being interviewed. And it's a propaganda video for the biggest jihadist group currently operating in Syria. They control Idlib, which is one of the last non-government controlled areas in, in Syria. 
And there's a white helmet speaking on this propaganda video, a recruitment video. And I was just gobsmacked. I thought, well, this is this seems like evidence of something really quite serious. The difference is that I did something that these other people haven't done. Neither the academics, nor Vanessa Bealey, nor the people trying to discredit the White Helmets. None of them have ever contacted the White Helmets and asked them what it's about. You know, this is the evidence I found. Can you explain this? And in fact, they could explain it. They went and tracked down the person who was in this video and we got to the bottom of it. But that was a real moment where I felt like I'd come across some real evidence that was incredibly damning. And the other time where I had a real wobble, the academics, as we call them, their proper name is the Working Group on Syria Propaganda and the Media. And they are a collective of academics and citizen journalists. And they claim that their main sort of driving force is that the chemical attacks in Syria have been faked that the OPCW, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is a UN-affiliated body, an internationally recognised body, that goes in and checks whether chemical weapons attacks have really happened or not, is there any evidence for that, that this organisation is compromised, that it has come under significant pressure from the West, particularly America, and that they are, in a sense, accepting fake evidence, and that the White Helmets and James LeMessurier are instrumental in faking chemical attacks, providing fake evidence. And this fake evidence includes dead people. Those dead people have been killed, according to these academics, in gas chambers. And then their bodies laid out to make it look like they've died in a chemical attack. And even in one case, in the case of the Han Sheikhoun Sarin attack, which happened in 2017 videos emerged of people dying in the process of dying. I mean, utterly horrific videos where you see people flailing and writhing like fish in the streets, dying on camera, children piled up in the back of trucks, gasping and taking their last breaths and dying on camera. Now, these academics, this group believes that those people were gassed in a gas chamber and not quite finished off, left to be filmed in the process of dying in order to impact us in the West so that we might lobby our governments to have some kind of military intervention and regime change in Syria. The only reason I don't want you to go further on this is because I want people to listen to May Day. And there's a lot, so much there. And we, we haven't really talked a great deal about James Measure, and, and he's actually just a fascinating figure. And he features very strongly in his bereaved widow's very powerful testimony about him and particularly about what happened right at the end of his life. So I don't want to spoil any of that because I really want people to listen to the podcast. But let me ask a bit more about some of the kind of, what's the impact been on you, Chloe? Have you been trolled? I mean, what one imagines that you have been pulled into a lot of this yourself. Yeah, it's hard not to be. And I was prepared for it. I knew it would happen. And I spoke to other journalists who had sort of covered the white helmets before and I knew that it would happen to them. It's still surprising when it happens to you because... I have to say, I've never had anything like it before. I've had listeners complaining about something or other in documentaries I've made in the past, but nothing like this. And Twitter is where it all really takes place. A lot of these people almost exist on Twitter. I was called a prostitute. I got messages telling me they hope I die and rot in hell. And most surprising, a very senior presenter for RT, Russia Today, the Russian state-funded channel, called me Al-Qaeda's Chloe Hajimathay, which I thought was quite interesting. He clearly thinks I'm a member of Al-Qaeda. It was quite amazing. 
And of course, what they tried to do is discredit the messenger, just like they did with the white helmets. They tried to discredit me. They claim that I'm government funded. They believe that I have contacts with the secret services. All I can say is I wish any journalist wishes that I don't. I'm certainly not government funded. The BBC's got incredibly strict rules about where funding comes from, incredibly strict rules about the influence on any of our work, on fairness, on impartiality. I'm not alone. I have entire editorial policy teams that check my work. I have lawyers that check my work. It's unbelievably rigorous. We went through the entire series with a fine tooth comb to make sure that everything in it was fair, balanced, justified, that there was evidence for everything I was saying. It was unbelievably rigorous. So you've got all of that, and that should be it. The fact that you've got that credibility, that infrastructure around you, there are really strong reasons to believe in you and to believe in the work that you've done and what motivates you. But yet, you know, just before this recording, Chloe, I wanted to check how to introduce you. I knew you were kind of written this series, presented this series, but just wanted to check, you know, that you were the producer, there wasn't someone else who was, a, who was the actual producer. Anyway, put your name into Google. And the first thing that popped up was an article on a website called BS, which was placed, I think I'm right, by Vanessa Beely, who features very heavily in your documentary, is one of the people who is discrediting the helmet. So here you are. This is kind of an example of what we're talking about. There's me innocently searching your name. And the first thing that comes up is a very, very lengthy account of your exchanges with Vanessa Beely, which led to her not participating in the programme, and which, reading your contributions to this debate, suggests you were getting a great deal of contact from her as well. So Vanessa Beely is a woman who's really integral to this series. She calls herself a citizen journalist and she's devoted her career to the alternative narrative about James LeMessure and the White Helmets. I contacted her quite early on in this series and started asking her questions. She's a really interesting character and the reason that I kind of focused on her was because I felt like, in a sense, she was... So similar to James, she started again in a very sort of elite establishment family. Her father was a Middle East diplomat, very well regarded. Sir Harold Beely, his portraits in the National Portrait Gallery. And so she grew up in this kind of very privileged household with an insight in the Middle East. And I think she was always interested in the Middle East. But she grew up having a very kind of uneventful life. She worked in various plastic companies in the suburbs of London, in middle management, until she was in her middle age. And then something took her to Gaza. I think it was the the attacks on the flotillas that were trying to break the siege on Gaza. And activists were shot on these flotillas. And she was really sort of moved by this. And she had friends in the pro-Palestine movement and they took her to Gaza and she began reporting as a citizen journalist from there. What interested me about her was that I felt like, in a sense, she was a kind of mirror image of James. They both started out in these elite privileged households. They both had an insight into the Middle East. Both of them thought that there was injustice being perpetrated in the Middle East. Both of them felt like they were fighting for the underdog in the Middle East. They could have done a million other things and they chose instead to follow this, fighting for the underdog in the Middle East. It's just that Vanessa Beely at some point took a very different turn. 
So at one point after the Syrian conflict began, a group of these pro-Palestinian Western activists broke away from the main movement and became pro-Assad, pro-Syrian government. And there was a real schism in the pro-Palestine movement. And this group that became pro-Syrian government began trying to travel into Syria, covering the so-called elections over there. And Vanessa Bealey was among them. And she got into Syria. And when she did, she got an audience immediately. The first time she got in, she got an audience with President Assad himself. And she was interviewed on Syrian state television. And so somebody like Vanessa Bealey, who is from such an establishment family in the UK, and who is so articulate, well-educated, and is travelling to Syria and saying to the Syrian public, your president has it right. We in the West are wrong. Our governments are evil. Our governments are perpetrating all of this violence upon you. We have brought this violence to you. There is nothing really going on in Syria. There are no inherent problems in this country. Your leader is fantastic. She became a kind of celebrity over there. And she began visiting Syria more and more and more and began being really integral to the message that the Syrian government was pushing out there, that the West is basically perpetrating this war in Syria. They are behind all the rebels, all the jihadists, even the very first protests on the streets of Syria turned violent because the West got involved. They believe that the West put snipers on roofs to shoot protesters and then blame the Assad government. She is part of this movement and she's become really so central to it because she's devoted her entire life to this. She is the specialist in James LeMessurier and the White Helmets. And she seems to be one of the first people to accuse the White Helmets of being involved in an organ harvesting racket, of stealing Syrian children and removing their organs and selling them on some kind of black market. There aren't a lot of details about exactly what they're doing with the organs once they get them. And accusing James LeMessurier of being involved in this. So that seems to me one of the important elements here. So we've talked about Syrian government, the Russian government. We know quite a bit about the kind of power politics that can lie behind disinformation. And, and of course, let's recognise that the West itself has often used the tactics of disinformation at times in the past. But there's also, you know, one thing that's interesting about the podcast is the kind of human element of it. And and this is something I've noticed in much more prosaic contexts, actually, like the RSA even. When one individual becomes completely dedicated to something and is willing to put all their time to it, and particularly if that individual is talented, actually a whole organisation can find it quite difficult to deal with one very, very determined individual who's completely on the case. And I've noticed this in other countries, and that's it. this is another part of this whole fake news thing, is if you look at fake news around the world in different contexts, you often find these individuals who are absolutely dedicated to making an argument, which, of course, they probably themselves don't consider to be fake news. They have come to believe it, and they can have an impact way beyond what you might imagine that any individual could have. That's right. I think that's true, and that's the case both with Vanessa Bealey and James LeMessurier, in a way. It's shaped both their lives. James, one of the things that I've heard about him, it's been very strange getting to know the man after his death, it's a strange thing. I've never had such an intimate relationship with somebody I've never met. But lots of people tell me he had this kind of insane passion for everything he did. And I think being formerly a soldier, 
and seeing various conflicts, both as a soldier and as a security contractor in Iraq and in the Balkans, in Kosovo, I think he was really disillusioned with the way these conflicts are allowed to hurt civilians and about Western intervention and the mopping up process afterwards. And I think he saw something in the White Helmets that really motivated him. And he devoted his whole life to it. And Vanessa Beely has devoted her whole life to opposing this organisation. She now lives in Damascus and this is what she does. It's been incredibly interesting getting to know these characters. So the question is, Chloe, to close with, what do we do about this? Normally on Bridges to the Future, I ask a guest right at the beginning, what's your big idea for the kind of post-COVID world, which one day we hope we'll move into? I didn't ask you that, but in a sense, the power of disinformation, the power of narratives in relation to conflict is the big idea that runs through your fantastic series. So what do you think we need to do about it? I know that in Finland now, they're teaching children in schools as part of the curriculum, how to be able to distinguish good information from bad information. What, apart from listening to your programme and being more attuned to these kinds of issues, can we do? It's really hard. I don't know what they're teaching in Finland. I'd quite like to take that course, frankly, because some of the time it's incredibly difficult to know what to believe. I go on blogs and websites that have really interesting information and insights, and I'm incredibly careful. All I would say is, you know, there's got to be a couple of media sources that you trust. I mean, I know I would harp on about the BBC, but for the most part, British broadcasting organisations are under incredibly strict regulation. And so I would choose one or two that you feel that you trust and then check, double check, run things past two or three different sources before you decide what to believe. If somebody is telling you something that's incredible, dig into their past. What other things have they said? Have they ever said anything wacky or anything that's been proven wrong in the past? Can you trust this person? Be careful is all I would say, because, you know, this information can be delivered from incredibly, incredibly reliable looking sources and respectable sources. So, you know, just because somebody has good credentials doesn't mean that they don't believe in some very strange things for which there isn't proper evidence. So in a sense, I wish I could give you better advice. But all I would say is be very careful. Well, we haven't talked at all about why James Samejere was dead body, ended up on the streets of Istanbul. And I've not done that quite deliberately, because to find out the answer to that, you're going to have to listen to Mayday. And by the way, as well as covering all the really big issues we've talked about today, it's an incredibly entertaining and engaging series. So please, as soon as you've finished listening to Bridges, open up BBC Sounds and get into Mayday. Once you listen to the first five minutes, you will listen to the whole series. Chloe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast please tell someone about it and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. 
You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.